Hello and welcome to Musicians Weekend, the podcast in which we explore the weird and wonderful lives of those who keep classical music making alive. In this episode, we'll be chatting about what we've been up to, recent classical music news, and of course, an interview with a special guest. We are three freelancers living in London. I'm Davina Shum and I play the cello. I'm Imogen Hancock and I'm a trumpeter. And I'm Olivia Jagers and I play the harp. So, Davina, what have you been up to this week? Well, I took advantage of the fact that it was half-term last week, so I went on holiday to Germany to visit my sister in Stuttgart, and my husband and I decided to go to Berlin as well beforehand, which, as well as being so rich in history, is a bit of a cultural capital. So when I booked our flights, I thought, wouldn't it be great to see the Berlin Philharmonic? Because I've always wanted to see them live, I've seen loads of their videos online, and I'm too lazy to queue for their prom every time that they come (laughs) to London. I jumped on their concert calendar and I thought, oh great, there are two concerts on while we're there. And I thought it was too good to be true. When I checked the location, they were playing in the Royal Festival Hall in London. (laughs) So they were on tour in London when we'd gone to Berlin. Really perfect timing. Instead, my husband and I attended a chamber concert put on by the students of the Carrion Academy, which is Berlin Phil's training scheme. And they performed predominantly wind repertoire. As Amy Harmon mentioned in her interview last episode, it's so important to watch and listen to disciplines other than your own. And I found it so useful watching wind instruments as a string player in terms of breathing and phrasing. So the concert was an hour and a half, starting early at 6pm, and it's free. So if you live in Berlin, you really don't need me to tell you to go, but if you're in Berlin for any other reason, don't forget about these concerts, because the Berlin film might not be in town that week. And I thought I'd mention a really cool concert that I saw advertised in Berlin. We went to the Stone Brewery, which is a craft brewery, a beer brewery, that my husband and I are rather fond of. Annoyingly, the day after we left Berlin, they were doing a run of three performances of La Boheme in the brewery, which I thought was such an amazing idea, and I really, really wished I could have gone. I think it's just such a brilliant concept, an opera in an unexpected place, and I would probably go to more operas if they were in breweries, (laughs) just saying. Um, And it turns out Olivia knew the person who was running that opera. Yeah, it's um, British tenor Andy Dickinson. Um, He studied at the Royal Academy of Music and yeah, really uh, great guy and he's based in Berlin now and the videos of Bohem there look so cool so we'll post a link to that and people are going to have a look at the pictures. Before my trip to Berlin I went to a string quartet concert in Hither Green which is in South East London. We sort of stumbled across this one by accident really. My cellist friend Hannah lives across the road from a church and outside she saw a poster of a few faces we recognised playing a string quartet concert together. She showed me the poster, and as we were both free, we went along and had a wonderful time. It's really nice to support local communities and attend concerts where musicians have put the whole thing together themselves. Later on, I spoke to one of the violinists in the quartet, Joanne, and she said she was keen to put on more concerts in the area and really grow her audience. So we'll post a link to her Facebook page, and you can check that all out. I think they're planning to put on lots more concerts. If you're in South East London and you don't want to go into town for a music concert, let's face it, the trains will probably be down anyway. You can enjoy a real top quality concert with the top string players from London orchestras playing in your local church. What about you, Imogen? What have you been up to? 
Well, I've had a very typical musician's weekend week. I worked on the bank holiday Monday, had three days on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, and then I worked all day Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So apart from practicing on those three days, I also went to a few gym classes. I joined a gym a few weeks ago. And I definitely feel like I'm already noticing the difference. I feel stronger physically, which is really helpful for things like just carrying my trumpet case around. And I feel like I have more energy throughout the day. I've been going to classes like Pilates, yoga, Zumba, and mm. body pump, personal favorite at the moment, uh, which is basically weightlifting. And, <laughs> and I've also been doing some swimming. And basically on days when I feel like all I have in my diary is practice, so basically it looks empty but I know it really shouldn't be, it's just been really nice to have somewhere to go that's outside of the house and something to structure my day of practice around. Yeah, I think it's something that musicians don't talk about enough, how good exercise can be just for their mental health as well. Definitely. And um, it comes up in our interview later Ooh, in this episode. Excellent. <laughs> it's also a total luxury to be able to go there when everyone else is at work. So, you know, 10, 11 in the morning. Ah, silver lining. Basically yeah. me and all the yummy mummies and some retired people. <laughs> great. great. <laughs> I really like that you've been doing yoga because I try and do a bit of yoga regularly and I find it really helps with my posture, sitting as a cellist. And also, as I mentioned before, with breathing, I find if I incorporate yoga sort of breathing when I'm playing, then somehow I'm not thinking too much about the technicalities of my yeah. instrument. The week before, I also had a lesson with brilliant trumpeter Hugh Morgan, because I'm currently preparing to perform a brand new concerto for trumpet and flugelhorn, which has been written by Leo Geiger, who Olivia mentioned in our last episode. So it was really helpful to play it through to Hugh, and obviously to play it to someone who's never heard it before, because it's a brand new piece. And... I felt that just having a lesson sort of recalibrated what I needed to focus on in my own practice and in my playing. And yeah, I was wondering whether either of you still have lessons post music college. I tend to, if I've got something coming up, like say an audition, if I have something coming up, it really motivates me. Since I finished Southbank Symphonia, I think because I had a schedule where I was just so busy and I noticed that my playing, my technique had sort of gone by the wayside, even just booking a lesson just to have a bit of a checkup got me thinking about why I do what I do. And I booked a few lessons with some great teachers. I feel like the best lessons are the ones where you're still thinking about what they're saying weeks and weeks later. I guess it can be a bit of a shock for people after music college to suddenly have to pay I don't know, £100 maybe oh, yeah. for, for an hour lesson or something. But I think if you can see it, it's just investing in yourself. Mm. That really is what it is. And it's just really good to have another pair of ears telling you how you can improve. Olivia, what have you been doing? I went to the Wigmore Hall last Monday to see the flute, viola, harp trio called Trio Trevocci. And their all-star lineup of Sivan Margan on harp, Marina Piccini on flute and the violist Kim Kashkashian, not to be confused with the reality TV star with the dangerously similar name. Um, harpists performing at the Wigmore are rare, so I always try and go and support those concerts so the management know harp concerts can sell. Um, just a little side note, if you want a concert hall to programme your particular instrument more, or music of a certain kind more often, make sure you do actually go and buy tickets for those concerts. Venues are businesses, and if they don't see demand, they won't be inclined to program more in future. And I think it's really easy for us musicians to think, I get booked for concerts, I don't go to concerts, but I find this attitude really quite short-sighted. I went to two last Tuesday that were part of two different concert series in my local area, actually, which is Southwark. And I'd highly recommend them both. The first was a lunchtime concert by Borough New Music. 
It was a cello recital by Joseph Spooner, playing music by Matthew Taylor and Sally Beamish, accompanied by Rebecca Ormodia on piano. Um, Borough New Music is a Tuesday lunchtime concert series in St George's Church, which is right opposite Borough Tube. I then saw a concert that night as part of the Shortwave Nights concert series in the Shortwave Gallery Cafe in Bermondsey's Biscuit Factory. Um, those concerts organised by violinist Philippa Moe and different guest soloists present the first half of the programme and then Philippa joins them for duos in the second half. And then finally, I listened to journalist and writer Dolly Alderton talking on a new podcast by Grazia magazine called Life Advice. This isn't classical music related, but I found it really interesting and I really could relate to a lot of it. And so I think maybe some other listeners who might be listening to this podcast too might find it interesting. She makes the point that if you've got an idea, just going ahead and doing it is more important than whether it's even a good idea. Just having a go at it. And if people say, oh, I I could have done that, that probably shows it's a good idea. But the point is, they didn't do it, you did. So if you want a little push with whatever you've got plotting in your head, I'd recommend listening to that podcast. Even with this podcast, we were talking about it for a while, thinking about it, and it kind of felt like quite a big thing to start doing, or quite a scary thing to start putting yourself out there. But we kind of all thought, if someone else did it, and we spent our whole time being like, oh yeah, we were going to do that, then we'd just be kicking ourselves. So we just wanted to go ahead and do it. That's genuinely my motivation for most things. I think I'd be so cross if somebody else did that for me. So I just got to do it really quickly. Yeah. And sometimes overthinking things and plotting too much. For me, I lose the love of it. Yeah. We're held back so much by our sense of self-doubt. So we've yeah. just got to go forth and And not everyone's going to love what you do or find it interesting or funny or want to be part of it. But there's some people that will. So just have a go. That's the moral of that story. So on to classical music news. A Swedish orchestra turned some hate mail into music. The Helsingborg Symphony Orchestra received an anonymous letter complaining about a program that included pieces by LGBT composers, saying that it made them want to vomit and cancel their subscription to the orchestra. You can't see because this is a podcast, but the other two are shaking their heads. So because it was anonymous, and of course these things usually are, the composer Frederick Osterling, I'm not sure on Swedish pronunciation, found it difficult to respond until the tenor Richard Soderberg suggested setting the words of the hateful letter to music. The resulting cantata, I don't know how to say this, Borgtraget, or Fag Train in English, had its premiere on May the 26th, and it was a shame that the librettist cancelled their subscription to the orchestra as they wouldn't have been able to hear their lovely libretto. I personally think this is a really great way to deal with the situation. Often these tirades result in more anger, more spite, more division, but to proudly take these hateful words and then turn it into a piece of art sort of reclaims it. It shows that they won't be humiliated. It's like saying, you know, so what to the bully in the playground. This fortnight, GDPR came into place. General confusion and a growing state of panic has seen the South Bank Centre cancel its data sharing agreements with around 40 arts organisations in a bid to comply with the General Data Protection Regulation. Now, the rules are really confusing, and although I'm really glad my spam from major companies will be massively reduced, I do actually feel really bad for the small arts organisations who may have lost a huge percentage of their contact list 
So I just thought I'd pop this GDPR thing in because it's topical and say, although it's a good thing for our inboxes, I do feel a little sorry for the little guys. Following from the last episode where we interviewed superstar bassoonist Amy Harmon, we thought we should mention the Royal Philharmonic Society's new Alliance Instrument Prize. This £2,500 prize is awarded to support performance opportunities and career development of an outstanding solo instrumentalist who is playing an endangered classical instrument. These include the bassoon, oboe, French horn, viola, trombone, tuba and double bass. The first award will be given to a bassoonist and auditions will take place in London on Sunday the 14th of October. So anyone up to the age of 28 who is based in the UK can apply, there's a fee of £20, but please do spread this around to any budding bassoonists you know before the deadline of Monday the 30th of July. Finally, this one is a bit silly, but researchers at the University of South Florida have found that listening to quiet classical music caused people to choose healthier food. <laughs> what? <laughs> they found that after playing classical music quietly, 71 subjects were then presented with the choice of fruit salad or chocolate cake. 44% of those who listen to loud music chose the chocolate cake, whereas 86% of people who listen to quiet music chose the salad. Those who listened to silence were split 50-50. So what does this mean? Perhaps cake suppliers should purposely target audiences at loud concerts. They could do a roaring <laughs> trade. I think for me personally, I'm not much of a sweet tooth, as you two know. My weakness is savoury things like crisps. But I would only eat crisps listening to loud music because they're too crunchy for quiet music. Oh yeah, great point. Yeah. I think I should listen to classical music while I'm doing the weekly shop because yeah. it saves the embarrassment of when my boyfriend comes home and opens the cupboards and sees all my impulse purchases. Yeah. Now for our guest interviewee. This fortnight, I interviewed the baritone Roderick Williams. Roddy had a solo spot at the last night of the proms in 2014. He won Singer of the Year at the Royal Philharmonic Society Awards in 2016 and was awarded an OBE for services to music in 2017. We met in a room backstage at Wigmore Hall on a really hot day, so we had a window open, so there's a little bit of traffic noise. A couple of things before we start. We mentioned about Indelian, and that's a music festival in Cornwall that Imogen, Davina and I have all played at. Roddy goes to regularly with his family. Project Awesome that we mentioned briefly is a free fitness group that we did in Cornwall and has branches in London, Edinburgh and Manchester that I'd really recommend looking up. And now on to the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for meeting me today, Roddy. Pleasure, yeah. We are here in Wigmore Hall the morning after you performed the last of the three most famous Schubert song cycles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Die Müller and Winterreiser and Schwanengesang. Mm -hmm. All within one year. Yes, year yes. And you've been blogging online and mm -hmm. uh, video blogging on YouTube mm -hmm. about the process under the name Schubert Cycle Project. Yes. And I just want to say I think it's really great that a performer of your calibre decided to <laughs> open it up. <laughs> up the process yeah. openly and I wondered if you could tell us why you decided to do that. I think there are several reasons. Partly for me the end result, three performances at the Wigmore, is just a brief moment and I knew that the process would take about three years. That's the time that was allotted to me and I knew that to absorb the song cycles in the way I'd like to, to make me feel comfortable performing them, would take about a year each. So. You know, just those one, just three evenings just seemed such a short span. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I wanted to make it last longer, actually, for one thing, the whole experience for me. Also, I'm very keen that people know, appreciate, not just audience members, but other singers as well, people who know the repertoire very well, and also people who are new to it, so young and old. I think it's, it's good for us all to be able to examine what it is to put something together like this. So there's that. And apparently also, let me be honest, insurance. There's something about singing to the Wigmore audience. It's probably a preconception I bring myself about this particular London audience, sitting there with their arms folded, tutting and, and shaking their heads as I make yet another grammatical German error or something like that. And I, I don't think the Wigmore audience is like that at all. In actual fact, having met them several occasions now and had the post-concert discussion with them last night as well, they're not that hypercritical audience that I worried about in my dreams. But by sharing the process of putting together, I engage with my audience and take them along that journey with me so that we've all got something to share at the end of it. It's not just me standing up on stage and singing out of the blue, but they've been following the story all the way along. It felt easier for me to be able to be honest all the way through and say this is what's scary about standing on the Wigmore stage and singing this particular repertoire to this particular audience and once that's out in the open I feel better about it. It's a great idea and I read on your first blog you said that you felt a lot of mental pressure around mm-hmm. tackling these works and that you were thinking you didn't really know if you could add anything mm-hmm. more to all the great interpretations that have come before and so I wondered if you had any advice or if you could tell us how you overcame that mental pressure or advice for other young musicians who have to do it on yes. regular. Well, I think that the thing that I discovered, I wrote about it in the last blog entry, which was the day before I gave the concert here. And the thing that I wrote is that I realise still that I've got nothing particularly new to say about them. And actually, now I feel really comfortable with that that the onus is not on me to come up with something incredibly profound or original about these pieces. What audiences I've realised want is to hear them again, performed live. That's all. And it doesn't have to be new. It doesn't have to be newfangled. I don't have to bring anything special, a video screen at the back with amazing projections. I don't have to sing them in any strange order or you know, try and tell you that this is the way that Schubert once did them on a Thursday in Vienna. <laughs> yeah. He jumbled all around and this is now the way we must do them. I haven't got anything profound to say about them. The important thing for me is that I now know them. I now feel comfortable with them. They, I feel that they are friends, these songs. They don't intimidate me in the way they did when I wrote that first blog entry. And I remember writing that. I remember how I felt with these things up there on pedestals, these giant pedestals of me on the floor looking up at them, thinking, you know, how am I ever going to break in? The simple fact is that by doing them a lot, they lose their fear. I lose my fear of them. I had a conversation with Mark Padmore down in Cornwall, down in Delian, in the pub after he'd performed Winterreiser, and I hadn't yet started on Winterreiser, and I kind of said to him, so, you know, any advice to what should I do? How do I? Just what you're asking me. And he said to me, you just got to do it lots. He's done Winterreiser, he said, about 80 times. That was then. He's probably done them a lot more since then. So 80 times over his career. I think we forget as young musicians when we go and hear our idols play that they probably perform those pieces so many times and that's why they look so comfortable on stage mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, that's entirely right. You do get comfortable. I was certainly wasn't comfortable the first time I performed any of these three. I was nervous. I went wrong many times in all of them. And you know what? I still do go wrong, but now I'm relaxed when I go wrong and I get back on the horse as quick as I can and keep going. So one needs to lose one's fear of going wrong. 
I've observed many times that there's only one place that you can really crack that, and that's on stage in front of people. You can do any amount of recitals alone in front of a mirror or in a room with a coach or a singing teacher. You can sing like a god then. But it's such a different thing standing in front of people and discovering the nerves, the sort of fight or flight response sometimes constricts your breathing or just interferes with your brain. You know, in some of those fast songs with lots of text flying around, I know I can do it. And yet in the moment I make a stupid error and it flummoxes me briefly. And I think, why did I do, why did I go, I know what the words are. Yeah. It's just live performance though. That things distracting me either consciously or subconsciously. I get momentarily distracted or my focus goes and, and I make a mistake, you know, big deal, no one dies, it's, it's fine. So actually my advice is just to get stuck in and do them and arrange as many performances as you can, not even paid ones, but just for friends and family, whatever, anybody who will listen. But you just have to perform them in front of people. I saw you recently singing with the BBC Symphony Orchestra and I'd accidentally booked tickets on the very front row. So I could see you <laughs> really clearly. Right, yes. <laughs> and you look so relaxed mm-hmm. then on stage. Do you still get nervous? Yes, I do. I get nervous for everything. Even those concerts where I'm thinking, oh, this is an easy one, I've got this. Uh, you know, stuff I know really well. Just when I step out on stage, I think, oh, yeah, I could, of course, just go monumentally wrong. Could still go wrong. I think I get most nervous when I'm doing something from memory because my memory is not wholly reliable. And even the things I know really well, I can slip up. But as I've just explained, part of being relaxed on stage is forgiving yourself for those slips. It's, it's never going to be perfect. Do you think it's really important to do certain things from memory? I don't think it's important to do them from memory, no. I think I've developed a way of singing to people with a copy of my hand where the copy doesn't become a shield or a mask and I can remain in contact with people. So often doing something from memory is a chance for me to be as vulnerable as I can be on stage and I think that's quite important. When you left university you worked as a classroom music teacher at Tiffin School in Kingston. Was it Tiffin Boys or Tiffin Girls? Tiffin Boys. That was before you decided to pursue a career in singing full-time. Yeah. And you once said in an interview, my colleagues and I often have people ask us post-concert, so what's your day job? I get asked this question a lot too, and I get really offended by it. And I'm getting better at (laughs) realising that's a really normal thing. But I still find myself sometimes, if I'm in a bad mood, getting a bit offended. (laughs) And I wondered how you deal with that question, and if you ever got offended, or still do? No, I never get offended, I think, because I find myself, therefore, coming up against people who don't have any conception of what the life of a professional musician might be. Of course, as I get older, I realise how terribly ignorant I am about all sorts of things different careers, different way people lead their lives, all sorts of things. So I don't mind ignorance. Going back to that article that that you just quoted, I didn't know until I was 23 or 4 or whatever it was that a career as a musician really existed. I didn't understand that as a concept. I don't know whose fault that was, but mostly mine, I suppose. I was very naive as a young man, probably still am. Now, my children, however, of course, have a very different view of life because they have a professional musician in the family, so I think it's entirely normal. What they don't understand is a nine-till-five existence. Things have changed hugely in a couple of generations. So my father was of a generation who would go to work at the same time every morning. He would do the same commute, and then he would get back home. And I remember his key would go in the lock at six o'clock, pretty well, you know, to the second. And that shape doesn't happen anymore. I have as little idea of what people do when they go into the city here and work in financial institutions 
as those same people have when they ask me, so what's your day job? The problem about being a self-employed musician is that one can be working the entire time. And any time one's not working, one feels guilty that one isn't working. So, for example, I have in my bag the Schubert Song Cycles. I've got an awful lot of revision to do between now and singing and over this weekend, all three of them. And literally any moment on a train, I should have the copy out and be working on it. And yet, you and I both know if I spend every moment doing it, I'll explode, my brain will shut down. So there are other times when I have to teach myself to switch off, often by listening to pop radio or anything, just to have different sounds so that I can't start processing the Schubert in my conscious mind. And actually what I've worked out is when I really need to relax, the thing I listen to is the sound of the sea, because it's pitchless and it's rhythmless. And it also takes me to places like Endelian uh, oh, in wow. Cornwall and other places. Uh, and you close your eyes and you can be at your favourite beach just listening to the waves coming in and out and crashing. That's a fantastic It's a really idea. interesting... It, it just gets me out. And I don't then start counting. I don't start pitching. Yep. I just leave it alone. <laughs> You're also a respected composer and you won a British Composer Award in 2016. <laughs> I did, yes. Wow, hooray. And you've got a new work being performed in celebration of the RAF's yes. 100th year yes, anniversary right. at the Barbican yeah. on the 11th of June. And you kindly wrote me something for my 15-second heart project. I did, yes. Yep. And it fit extremely well under the fingers. <laughs> oh, and good, it became lovely. one of my favourite miniatures. <laughs> I wondered how you find time to write around your singing commitments. Well, because my singing involves a lot of travel and a lot of hotel stops, I find it easiest to write away from home. Because when I'm at home, there are other pressures. There's the pressure of just being a family man. There's also the pressure of being a domestic god. You know, I, I do like to get stuck in when I'm at home. So things like emptying a dishwasher or doing the ironing or cleaning in general or anything like that can become a welcome procrastination tool. So when I'm away, when I'm on a train or when I'm on a plane, then I can get stuck into something without interruption. So that's when I find the time. Also, like I said, it's possible for it to take over because we're self-employed. So I haven't read a book for example, a piece of fiction or non-fiction biography or anything like that. I haven't read a book for some considerable time now because it is exactly those moments when you read a book that I feel I should either be learning music or writing. And the deadline for the RAF commission was um, was coming up very close and I had an awful lot of parts to write for the RAF concert band, the central band of the RAF. So I really had to focus and sit down and churn that out, get it done. And when it came to it, I was opening my laptop working at every spare second and it's something I can settle down and do hour upon hour the time just drops away the problem is is that being an amateur composer I'm so flattered when people ask me for compositions I say yes to everything then I suddenly realize that professional composers they space it out I've slightly bitten off more than I can do <laughs> in, in this year and said yes to some wonderful wonderful invitations but I need to crack on and get them done I read um, your interview in the Cross-Eyed Pianist blog. Oh, yeah. In which you defined success as a musician. All right. And you said, I've decided my goal is to be happy, to be able to work with wonderful musicians at a high level, enough to live comfortably, but not so much that the stress becomes a burden. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a really great definition. I'd sign up to that, yes. Yeah. I, can, I can imagine saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but I wondered if your definition of success was the same when you were younger and... If you could go back and meet young Roddy studying at Guildhall, if you'd give him any advice. No, I don't think I have any particular advice to give young Roddy because I think I'm very happy with the way that my career has sort of 
unfolded without pressures in front of me. So I'm aware that everybody has a unique path through this business. So when people sometimes ask me, how did you get into it and what, what was your route? I can tell them, but it's not going to be of much use to them because that was my path. My path is quite haphazard and you can see a logic to it in hindsight maybe, but at the time I couldn't have defined success at that age because I was so green about what the industry meant. I think I have been happy in what I've been doing all the way through so I can tick that box. So I've been lucky in life, which is why I say it's very difficult to be able to apply that to a younger singer. Oh, be lucky. (laughs) <laughs> that's, yeah, that's my advice yeah be lucky um, um, yeah have good fortune you could on the outside try and say Roderick Williams he's such a smiley happy-go-lucky grinny sort of guy that luck follows him around but that's not true I think if I'm happy and go lucky it's because I've been lucky don't you believe I mean? you create your own luck I don't think so because that means that when I, when I think now of some people who've had the most disastrous luck if luck is what you want to call it. They've had a life that has been blighted by illness or tragedy. And if it is true that you create your own luck, then surely the reverse must be true, that they've done something that has rewarded them with the most catastrophic set of circumstances. And I can't believe that is true. I sometimes liken life to a game of Monopoly, where you pick up those community chest or, you know, chance cards, and it says, you've just been diagnosed with such and such your life savings will now be spent trying to chase medical costs in America, you know. I mean, who knows what card? And then I pick up one that says, you've just won a Basker Award for a piece of music that someone asked you to write. Oh, (laughs) how lovely, you know. I I dodged the card, the previous card, and got this one instead. Because at the end of the day, health is wealth. Yes, I think being healthy, I mean... Okay, it so happens that we interacted over that project Awesome down in Cornwall, yeah. and which I've enjoyed tremendously. And I've always been interested in, in keeping fit, not in being a gym bunny, so I don't work out in order to sculpt myself. But I do like to be able to do what, whatever is required of me on stage and just keep myself, generally speaking, healthy. But I don't suffer much vocally, so I have had to cancel only a few times in my life. Weirdly, most of them down in Delian, because I think that's <laughs> partly my body says we're on holiday now, yeah. packs up, you know, so I think that is a thing. But generally speaking, I cancel rarely, and I'm grateful for that. But that is the only sense in which I, I could imagine that one creates one's own luck by looking after yourself, generally speaking, and trying to follow healthy habits as much as possible without being too retentive about it. By doing such things, and maybe I keep well and I can keep positive and I can keep moving forwards. And that's about it, I think. We're creating a little segment in our podcast about people's most surreal gigs. And I wondered if you had any little anecdote of something really a little bit wacky or off the wall that you've experienced on a gig. There are lots of times where I can I can remember thinking, this is a weird one. You know, <laughs> what am I what am I doing here? You know how people's anxiety dreams often end up with you being on stage, either naked or in your pyjamas, with someone pointing at you to conducting, and you know, that's a typical opera singer's anxiety dream. So I found myself on stage at English National Opera, which is uh, at the Coliseum, one of the widest, biggest stages in London, and I was alone on stage in my underpants. And I thought, ah, right, so this actually is the dream. And it's very interesting because then, of course, I got over that dream. I got over that anxiety dream. 
Finally, if you weren't a musician, what would you like to be doing for a living? Uh, now, I'm glad you asked that because someone asked me that recently, a school child asked me that in a Q&A recently, and I was completely flummoxed by this. So my wife and I have been going over this since then and trying to work out what a good answer would be. So we decided house husband. Great. Yeah, house husband. I'd be very good at that. I really like that. Because um, you like ironing. I like ironing um, uh, and, and getting things ordered and just sorting things out. You could just be, you could be a cleaner. Yeah. So... I'm better cleaning my own house than other people's, I think. But there's something about that ordering of things oh, that yeah. I quite like. Have you heard of Marie Kondo? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My wife's birthday is celebrated not by taking things into the house, but by getting rid of things. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah. Spark joy. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is a great thing. We've just been doing that last couple of days, getting things out of our house, almost including our children. But anyway, but uh, <laughs> getting things out of the house is... Uh, it, it, you know, that might sound like a facetious response to the question, but it's partly acknowledgement that all my eggs are in the music basket. So take them away, and I'm a bit rudderless, actually, as to what I do. All my hobbies are tied up in it, so don't quite know. I've had a thought. Yes. You can now become a Marie Kondo consultant. Oh my goodness, Yeah, yes. she gives talks and you can train to be one, so maybe that could be your job. Yes. A professional organiser and spark joy. Go around and just have other people throw throw stuff out. And uh... there we go. That's it. <laughs> Thank you so much to Roddy Williams for being such a fantastic guest. Now it's time for our weird gig for this episode. So our weird gig was submitted by Julia Laux. She's a violinist in the Welsh National Opera and also the Jubilee String Quartet. We were actually in the same year of Southbank Sinfonia 2013 together and she has written out her experience at the Meltdown Festival 2013. My weird gig experience has to be when members of the Southbank Sinfonia were booked to play for the Meltdown Festival at the Southbank Centre. We were to perform the Schubert Octet in the Purcell Room, which sounded pretty fancy. Little did we know that the performance would be altered by none other than Yoko Ono. The concept was never properly explained to us, but I imagine it was something along the lines of silencing art or the effects of medical gauze and bandage on the quality of music making. Her concept had been performed before using other pieces and performers and went by the name of Sky Piece for Jesus Christ. This was our own special version and as we began the first movement, members of the Southbank Symphonia and Southbank Centre Management came on stage and slowly began wrapping each of us in gauze. It started fairly harmlessly with a little bit of bandaging round our feet, on our heads and round our midriffs. As the gauze started to make its way to our arms and fingers, the effect on the quality of music making became more obvious, which in a way was a relief for me because the Schubert octet is effing hard. <laughs> my favourite moment was when the gauze was actually wrapped round the strings on my violin, meaning I could only scrape away and try not to fall into a fit of hysterical laughter. The whole process probably took around 20 minutes. It was seriously memorable and probably something I will never experience again. But we all got to meet Yoko Ono backstage afterwards. I'm going to post a link to the YouTube video of this because it's absolutely hilarious. If you look at about the 20 minute mark when they reach the third moment of the Schubert Octet, they can hardly play anymore because they're all completely bandaged. And the performance ends with them just sitting there covered in bandages. And the audience laughing. <laughs> yeah. Now for some upcoming concerts. 
As you heard in the interview, there is a concert at the Barbican on Monday the 11th of June celebrating 100 years of the Royal Air Force, featuring the brand new piece for the Central Band by Roddy Williams. It's called Per Ardua Ad Astra, meaning Through Adversity to the Stars, and I'm hoping to go to this concert also to celebrate the memory of my granddad who flew a Spitfire in World War II. Wow. wow. There is a fundraiser currently happening on Facebook, which is trying to raise money for a violinist in the Georgian National Philharmonic Orchestra who has sadly been diagnosed with a really aggressive form of cancer. They're quite a long way off their target of 170,000 euros mm. for this violinist to get a treatment abroad. We'll put a link alongside this episode, so if you feel you're able to help, then please do help out a musician from around the world. A couple of events I thought I'd mention. YCAT. Young Classical Artist Trust have a speed dating event, a professional speed dating <laughs> event, I should add. It's on Tuesday the 12th of June at 2 o'clock, Alexandra Hall, which is part of the Royal Overseas League. And it's an industry event covering fundraising, marketing, career development, tax and accounting, artist management, professional biographies and more. And there will be the team from YCAT there, somebody from Classic FM, somebody from Accounting, Help Musicians UK. So that could be a really useful event. And then another concert that I highly recommend is by the soprano Eloise Werner. And she is performing her new solo opera called The Other Side of the Sea on Monday the 2nd of July at the Cockpit Theatre. She's a really interesting musician and I expect it will sell out. So I'll put the link to that and you can find out more about it. Special thanks to Chris Rowe who composed our lovely jingle. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and your favourite podcast apps. And if you enjoyed this episode, please send it to just one friend and if everyone does that, we can double our reach. And if you really liked it, leave us a review on iTunes. See you next time. Bye! Bye.